The final investigator I met with was Dr. Lawrence Solon, and to begin, we talked about the recent meta-analysis evaluating radiation treatment after lumpectomy. The recent publication in The Lancet from the meta-analysis was really a key paper in our understanding of radiation treatment after lumpectomy. As I think all of the listeners will recognize, the meta-analysis includes patient data from all randomized clinical trials. In this case, it was lumpectomy plus or minus radiotherapy. And we now have very long outcomes, 10 and 15 years after this randomization. And the meta-analysis, of course, takes all patient data and then looks at it by combining it with very sophisticated techniques from our statistical colleagues. As we know, radiation clearly improves local control, and it does so very early within the first five years after treatment. What's of great importance is that this translates into a very substantial effect on improvements in mortality between years 10 and 15, and there's a very key relationship of local control to survival. So the meta-analysis from the recent Lancet paper is really a key paper in confirming our understanding of the value of adding radiotherapy after breast conservation surgery or lumpectomy. For practical purposes, in what situations are you comfortable omitting radiation therapy? And of course, the one that's been looked at is women over age 70. Right. This is really a key area to try to gauge which patients we can omit radiotherapy. As we know, radiotherapy is very effective, but of course has some aspects of side effects and toxicity. So one thing we look at in terms of trying to figure out which patient should or should not have radiotherapy is the estimated survival of that patient. It's important to remember that in the U.S. at least, the average 70-year-old has a very substantial life expectancy. And so if you're dealing with a fairly healthy 70-year-old without substantial comorbid conditions, we tend to be quite aggressive in using radiotherapy. Conversely, if the patient's either older or perhaps has more comorbid conditions, then that's the kind of patient we would consider not using radiotherapy on. I think what's also important to remember is that in the trials of women 70 and above, these were all fairly small trials empowered for local control, and we know that you would need lots and lots of patients to demonstrate the survival gains. Can you comment on where we are today in terms of partial breast radiation? Partial breast radiotherapy is a very important paradigm to test, and it's being done in a number of clinical trials. In fact, the NSABP and the RTOG have combined to do a landmark clinical trial, which is still open and accruing patients, and randomizes patients to standard or conventional whole breast radiation versus partial breast radiotherapy. Although we know that the early results from phase one and phase two studies indicate that partial breast radiotherapy is something that's worthy of study, we in fact have very limited amounts of randomized clinical trial data. And in fact, one of the few randomized clinical trial data outcomes we have is limited really to four-year outcomes albeit in a well-designed, randomized controlled trial. Any comments on the so-called TARGET trial evaluating intraoperative radiation treatment? Well, I think the TARGET is the first well-designed, well-run, randomized clinical trial. It was done with a very large cohort of patients. It was very well done. It's important to recognize that in some patients, based on clinical and pathologic characteristics, whole breast radiotherapy was added to about 12 or 15% of the patients. So it's not target for everybody versus whole breast for everybody. It's selected target for the majority of the patients. And I think that it's an interesting technique because it is something that can be used widely. However, it should be cautioned that the outcomes data at this time are limited to four-year outcomes. And we know in breast conservation treatment that four-year outcomes 
are not sufficient and that five and probably 10 year outcomes are gonna be important to really judge the long-term efficacy of this treatment relative to the standard whole breast. So I think in summary, we've got a very fine randomized clinical trial with four-year outcomes, and it looks promising, but we need to wait longer outcomes data. Additionally, the more common technique in the U.S. is external beam, partial breast radiotherapy, and again, we need to see what the results of the NSABP trial are going to be. And in particular, we don't have the trial closed yet. It's still open for accrual. So I think in summary, partial breast is a promising technique, but still I think we need to be cautious before we put that into widespread implementation before we have longer-term outcomes and larger numbers of patients on randomized clinical trials. Any comments on post-mastectomy radiation therapy, where you see it being indicated and where you see it being used and what kind of questions you get about it? Sure. Post-mastectomy is a very important topic because this is largely done predominantly in the clinical population for patients who are node positive. And of course, although these patients also get systemic therapy, they're also a high risk for local regional recurrence. So we tend to offer post-op radiotherapy for all patients with four or more positive lymph nodes at the time of mastectomy. However, more recent data from the Oxford Overview suggests that the value of post-mastectomy radiotherapy is also present in the subset of patients with one to three positive lymph nodes. At this time, this is a key population because the number of patients is so big. And we know that most patients after mastectomy have one to three positive lymph nodes. So what we're talking about here is a big group of patients and a group of patients for whom we might get a substantial survival gain. I think one of the important things is to see the formal analysis by the Oxford Overview Group or the so-called Early Breast Cancer Trialist Collaborative Group, EBCTCG, so we can get a real handle on this. And I'll add a couple more comments. One is that in the subset of one to three positive nodes, this is a very diverse group. I think all of our surgical colleagues and medical oncology colleagues recognize that a patient with one positive node in a small T1 tumor is not the same as someone with a larger tumor and three positive nodes. So a key analysis in the Oxford overview will be the subset of patients with one versus two versus three positive lymph nodes. And I think we're all really looking forward to that data and that data analysis. Any thoughts about where future research related to radiation treatment might be heading and the potential role of molecular profiling? Molecular profiling has been a key topic for adding or using systemic therapy and making systemic therapy decisions. This had a huge, important, and valuable impact on our patient populations. One of the key questions that I'm interested in is whether or not molecular profiling can be used to select local therapies. And that's really an area that's going to be coming to the fore in the near future. We've had some early work on that, both myself and others. And one of the key questions is whether we can use molecular profiling to select local therapies. So for example, in a borderline situation, can we use this to select radiotherapy after mastectomy? Can we use this in a patient after lumpectomy to select radiotherapy or not? And I think these are really going to be key questions. This is very early in the game for us in the local regional arena, and we're probably five, eight, ten years behind our medical oncology colleagues. But I think for the listeners, it's important to keep an eye out for this because I think if one is a surgeon, a radiation oncology, I would predict that in two, three, four years, this will be a primary importance to us in selecting local therapies. 
So kind of related to that is the paper that you presented at San Antonio looking at the Oncotype DX in patients with DCIS that were in an ECOG trial. Can you talk about that? For our patients who have a lumpectomy after DCIS, one of the critical questions is, should one add radiotherapy or not? We know that for the overall group of patients, adding radiotherapy has a substantial improvement in local recurrence. But we also know that some patients are at higher risk or lower risk. So what we tried to do was to determine if we could use a molecular profiling tool to determine those patients who might be at higher risk or lower risk. Now, the methodology for this paper is really quite important because we used a very sophisticated and well-published what's called a prospective retrospective study. And this is a method to take clinical studies which have outcomes and use them to validate biomarker analyses. So it's a very sophisticated, rigorous process. This is not a fishing expedition, so to speak. The publication that really outlines the methodology is by Simon et al. from the JNCI. And we were very, very rigorous in following that methodology. And what we did was we defined a score that we thought would be useful in DCIS. It's a subset of the 21 genes in the Oncotype DX score that all of our medical oncology colleagues use in daily practice. And this particular DCIS score has 12 genes, which is a subset. And we then used ECOG E5194 specimens to validate the DCIS score, which had been previously defined. And what we found was that we could identify patients at higher risk and patients at lower risk. And of importance, we could find patients who might be at low enough risk to omit radiation after lumpectomy. And that's the key here. I think the other really key thing about this particular study, and the thing that makes it so powerful and so important for our patients, is that what we know about radiotherapy is that on average, patients benefit. But we know that patients are all individuals and unique, and we know that some have higher risk and some have lower risk. And what this tool allows us to do is to define the risk for the individual patient. And that's a powerful, a new, major advance for the management of our patients, because now we can talk to an individual patient and say, we think your risk is low enough that you might reasonably avoid radiation treatment, or conversely, that your risk is high enough that we think we should add therapies after lumpectomy. I think one important thing to remember about these molecular studies is that it's very hard to do a prospective randomized trial. And that's why the Simon paper outlines how to use these older studies to get validated information. And I think that's one of the keys here is that that's how we did this particular study. We know in clinical practice, if we did prospective randomized trials, it would take 10, 12, 15 years to get outcomes data. And clearly, we'd like to help our patients now. So can you talk about the ECOG-5194 trial? That wasn't a randomized study, actually. No, the 5194 was not a randomized study. But what we did was we tried to prospectively identify patients who we thought were clinically at low risk based on standard clinical and pathologic criteria. There were, in fact, two eligibility strata One strata was patients that had lower intermediate grade DCIS with tumors up to two and a half centimeters, and the other was for patients who had high grade DCIS up to one centimeter. So again, we were trying to prospectively identify patients 
who were at sufficiently low risk that they didn't need radiotherapy. One of the key things about the study is that although these patients had clinical and pathologic parameters, what we found from the DCIS score is that they had substantially variable risk based on molecular profiling. And that's a very powerful statement when you talk to the individual patient. Now, one of the things that you reported there was, I'll just quote right out of the abstract, with relationship to grading of the tumors pathologically, quote, comparison between local and expert grading showed substantial disagreement. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And, you know, in terms of more conventional pathology with DCIS, how reliable or reproducible it is? Well, I think a couple aspects about grade are really important here. One is that how pathologists have defined grade seems to have changed over time so that some of these older studies may or may not use contemporary classifications for grading. Of course, there's been a shift to grade in contemporary reports, whereas in older reports, for example, architecture might be an important issue. You know, we had architectural subtypes, solid, papillary, micropapillary, and so on. One of the things that was of importance in our current study from San Antonio is we found that regardless of grade or regardless of the strata that the patients entered in, the DCIS score was able to identify patients at higher risk or lower risk, regardless of whether they had high grade or low grade, and regardless of whether they had eligibility based on strata one or strata two. So it's important to remember that regardless of the subgroup here, all of these patients had underlying biology identified that was not seen on routine clinical and pathologic parameters. Another way to say this is, if we were just reinventing the wheel, that wouldn't be an advance. But what we found is quite the converse, that we add to our knowledge of the biology by doing this test for patients. I also want to make another comment about who should get this test. And I think this was perhaps misunderstood early on. We need to use this test selectively like any other test. Any test will have patients who are or are not eligible to use it. And so, for example, we need to restrict this to patients who would be eligible for the 5194 criteria. Clearly a patient who has closer positive margins. Clearly a patient who's younger, under age 50. These are not the kinds of patients that we would use this test on. I think like any test, we need to understand the correct group of patients that might be eligible for that kind of study. And again, you know, for example, a patient with a bigger tumor and so on, those are not the kinds of patients we would use this for. But I think that once we do select the right group, and by the way, this is the bulk of patients we see in clinical practice, once we do select the right group, this becomes a very powerful tool to assess individual risk and to begin to approach the topic of tailored treatment for a given patient. Now, this test is available. Do you think there is a role for it right now? The test is available in clinical practice. The DCIS score is available in clinical practice. It's been available for a couple of months. Many people have asked me, do I use it? And the answer is yes, of course I use it. I think that it gives me a great deal of information about the biology. But again, it's patients who are eligible for 5194 and patients who are eligible to talk about omission of radiotherapy. Another key factor about this is that about a quarter of the patients have high-risk biology that we didn't see, remembering that these patients all had what appeared to be low-risk biology based on clinical and pathologic characteristics. So it's a very powerful tool for managing individual patients, and that's really the key here, to select the right subgroup and then to look at the patients 
for those who might be eligible for omission of radiotherapy. So in the low-risk patients, there still was a greater than 10%, I think it was 12% risk of ipsilateral breast event, including about 5% invasive events. Do you think that's low enough that you can omit radiation therapy? I think there are a couple of aspects to the answer for that particular question. First off, it's important to recognize that in the multivariable analyses, other factors were important. They were specifically tumor size and menopausal status, which probably is a surrogate for age. Secondly, we know that tamoxifen reduces risk in the ER-positive subset, and we know that most of these patients are going to be ER-positive. So as we look at these numbers, these are not static numbers. They're dynamic in the context of the individual patient. And then I think that's exactly the kind of question that needs a very long discussion with the patient, because there are some patients for whom the answer is going to be, no, these aren't low enough risks. And then there are going to be some patients who are going to say, yes, this is a low enough risk. And I think that's something we have to put into context. It's also important to remember that the numbers which we just heard a few minutes ago, the 12% local recurrence and the 5% invasive local recurrence, is actually for the median of that group. So there are some patients with actually lower risks than that. And again, this just comes back to the fact that we get the biology for the individual patient, not for the average of the group. So what about other ways to assess patients with DCIS? And you had a really great editorial in the JCO, Selecting Individualized Treatment for Patients with Ductal Carcinoma Inside to the Breast. The search continues. And from my reading, the paper that it was commenting on was attempting to look at a nomogram for predicting risk of ipsilateral tumor recurrence. What did that study show? And what about these other ways and nomograms to try to assess patients? Those are key questions because the historical approach to this has been to look at clinical and pathologic parameters. And the particular paper we were discussing in the JCO editorial was doing exactly that. It was looking at clinical and pathologic parameters. And it shows that while this can be predictive, there are some variances in how reliable that is. But more importantly, I think that we are now getting past that and into an era in which we're going to have to take into account underlying biology in terms of managing our patients. So that although we know that clinical and pathologic parameters do have some value, I think one of the key factors here is they don't tell us the whole story. And I think that many of us who have been in this field for a long time are very excited to have molecular tools now that can improve upon those sorts of risk strata. So a lot of people, including myself, have been hearing for a long time about the issue of margins in DCIS. Mel Silverstein and others have talked about that. How does that factor into this equation? Margins, I think, will always be a key parameter in the lumpectomy specimen for the patient undergoing breast conservation treatment. We know that margin status is a key variable for all of our patients after lumpectomy, whether they have DCIS or invasive carcinoma. I don't think that even the molecular tools will take that away. I think it's important to put all these into some context that it's the combination of the clinical, the combination of the pathologic, and the combination of the molecular factors that will all be important. Having said that, the question you raise is really critical because if we have a parameter, in this case pathologic margins, that are not really good in the sense of low risk, we know that that's a patient who needs more treatment. And then we have to start looking at the patient and say, do we need more surgery or relumpectomy? Do we need radiotherapy? 
do we need something more aggressive? And I think that margins will never go away. And remember that the DCIS score we've been talking about is only in the context of clean margins. So that's a key parameter. And I think the question about margins is still going to be key for us in clinical practice. Now, are there plans or any ongoing trials attempting to further look at this, I guess, Oncotype DCIS score? Oh, of course. I think the Oncotype DCIS score, the presentation from San Antonio, is really just the beginning of what will be a very long journey. If we look back at the 21-gene Oncotype score for systemic therapies, we know that there were many types of studies that came afterwards. And I think if we think back to the history of the 21-gene Oncotype score, and we sort of think about the 12-gene DCIS score, it's very easy to think about the kinds of research that might come out of this. So for example, clearly we want a second validation study to validate the prognostic effect. We clearly want to talk about a predictive issue in terms of the value of radiotherapy. For example, is radiotherapy equally effective regardless of the underlying molecular profile? We can talk about patients who might have other sorts of clinical scenarios. For example, larger tumors, tumors over two and a half centimeters. So again, I think we can think about all of these sorts of future research questions. And I think that, again, to put this into perspective, this is really exciting for me as a clinician and a researcher because it's the beginning of a new era. The fact that this is positive really sets the stage for what I think will be an enormous amount of excitement on the research side, an enormous amount of value for our patients on the clinical side.